This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In the past, Hawaii's public schools have gone before legislators asking for help to pay the power bills. It's likely the schools will ask for uh, emergency appropriation in record territory uh, come January as rates have surged at a time when Governor David Ige has added some 1,200 more air conditioners to cool classrooms. We talked to Facilities Assistant Superintendent Randy Tanaka this morning about this dilemma of rising fuel costs. In the first quarter, year-over-year change, it's a 41% increase is what we've estimated. It's just fuel costs. It's all fuel costs that have gone up. I mean, our usage from a kilowatt is only 3% different, but the fuel cost has gone up tremendously, the electricity cost. It's a global problem, and from the state, it's not only the DOE, it's every other agency across in the state that'll experience the same thing. We've got a double whammy because like you said, we're putting in more AC units. So our consumption will continue to climb. The other part of the same side of the coin is what are we doing to conserve and change out the light bulbs and do all of that stuff to reduce our consumption. And what are we doing with PV generation? We're looking at that now. Do we put in more PV panels to generate our own? But in the short term, it's not a pretty picture. Do you expect you're going to have to go in for an emergency appropriation? We're going to report out after the first half and when we get into session what it's going to look like. And they've got to put forward the the emergency appropriation. And we'll see. And by then, we'll have a new governor. So, And I'm sure, like I said, the, the other side of the same coin is what are we doing to reduce consumption or generate our own? Well, what did we have budgeted? Uh, you know, I mean, if you're talking 41% for the first quarter, we're already into the fourth quarter here. You know, it, a lot has to do with what has happened with oil supply, the, the issue in the Ukraine, and the, you know, the Middle East guys trying to shore up the, the, the barrel price. Uh, and then, you know, part of our uh, elimination of coal fire generation here in the state. I'm not exactly sure how that has impact, but uh, I'm trying to work with our energy guys and the Office of Energy on what the other other agencies are looking at. But yeah, the first quarter, we had a 41% increase in our costs. And that's not even counting the hot summer that we had, you know, August, uh, September, October were pretty bad, pretty humid. And, you know, Governor Ige did put in all those air conditioners, and we had COVID. So, you know, there was the the need to kind of uh, get the air circulation going. That didn't impact us as much. The ventilation didn't impact us as much because, you know, a lot of our schools still uh, have uh, windows that they can open. We've got about Uh, seven schools that have limitations in terms of drawing in uh, fresh air from the outside. So that wasn't so much of the challenge. I think it's it's not consumption, it's cost. So at this point, you are bracing for some pretty large bills, and I don't know if you've gotten anything back, you know, for the other part of the year. Uh, no, not not yet. But you know, we we've tracked the first quarter. Like I said, consumption is enough. It's just cost. The cost has gone up nearly forty one percent. Well, what did you folks budget for, knowing that we were adding all those air conditioners? We haven't added that many air conditioners. That's not the reason why uh, our cost is going up. But going forward, as we continue this year, we're installing a lot more. How many have we put in so far? I think a little over with the from from the time this had started, probably about 1,200 AC units total, out of from from a classroom perspective. So it's still being installed. Uh, it's not only the 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 AC units, the window units, but uh, we got to work on the the electrical systems, which can some can some can't handle handle the load. So it's not just installing AC units, it's installing the infrastructure, which all goes to get us to where we want to be. Okay, so you'll have a better handle uh, come January what those additional costs might be and what the ask will be uh, for lawmakers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you been talking with, let's say, UH and uh, other government entities uh, that suck up power? My guys are talking to UH. You know, on the scale of magnitude, we're much bigger than, you know, everybody else. So their their impact may be not maybe high as as ours. 
uh, but we're having that discussion what, what mitigation strategies they have. But, you know, it's the same thing. It's, it's all cost. Just like you, right? You look at your electricity bill and you're going, what is this? Well, it's the fuel charge, that increase in fuel. What's the breakdown on the neighbor islands? We haven't looked at it that way yet in the disproportion because we, we pay, our, our office pays all the electricity bills. We can break it down, but we're not, we just took the top line or the bottom line and said, guys, we continue on this pace. We're going to have significant increase in costs. Could be as high as $12 million plus, but that's kind of what we're looking at right now. Wow. What's that's the average? Million, you, you think about it, it's a million dollars more a month, right? Just in the first quarter. What is it normally? Um, you know, at the end of the year, in the past years, my guys tell me we're, we're in the red about $5 million. If it tracks the way it's tracking, we could be in the red $15, $20 million, over and above. What has your office been doing to get the word out to the schools on usage and conservation? You know, we changed out the light bulbs. Yeah. We shut down units. Where we've evaluated all our centralized air systems. And what COVID did to us to promote the ventilation and the circulation, we told them to open their doors, open their windows. And now that we've got ventilation pretty much better managed, so to speak, uh, they don't have to open their doors. They run the air purifiers in their room. They can close the, the windows and run their AC, and we will continue to achieve the, the low particulate count. Uh, and we're going to be fine with the air purifiers. We're, we've got about, I think, 177 more to deliver, and we'll be in pretty good shape. That was Randy Tanaka, Assistant Superintendent for the Office of Facilities and Operations at the Department of Education, who we talked to this morning. He says the DOE is bracing for increases in its power bills this year. Behind the ships and the trucks and the trains that keep stuff moving through this economy are the businesses that keep those machines going. Take locomotives. We are the only qualified vendor to do this repair. So if any GE engine fails around the world, we either have to go do it or it's got to come to us. I'm Kai Rizdal, behind the scenes of keeping the trains running on time next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Our reality check today looks at a plan called Holomua Marine 30 by 30 that drew a turnout on the neighbor islands recently. Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story uh, by Marina Riker. So tell us about this plan. Yeah, uh, and Marina, I'm covering for her today because she covers Maui County. She's over there, and she's yet again covering another uh, hearing. Good for her because we appreciate her reporting. And, yeah, you said it at the top. This is about Holomua Marine 30 by 30. It's a statewide initiative to manage 30% of the stains, uh, the state's nearshore waters by the year 2030, which is coming pretty soon. Uh, Governor Ige actually introduced this, the 30 by 30 plan, six years ago. You, you remember that international conference? Yes, uh, the convention on, center. On, on, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It was enormous. You had all these major players coming here. And, and yet, uh, of course, COVID happened. That was a big factor. And Governor Ige will be leaving office shortly. And, and yet this plan is in place. So Marina was reporting on the, on the first round of hearings that will be going island to island. Uh, there's already been these community hearings in Hana, in the Wailuku Kahului area, also in Lahaina. And in short, they're, they're trying to get community input on, on how to, to manage these waters. How do you, for example, balance uh, the size and catch limits for fishing? And that's a big concern here. But, you know, it's not just fishing that's involved. It's also uh, climate change. It's also development, coastal erosion being a factor. And yes, we do have to acknowledge there has been some over-harvesting. And there's also been a loss of traditional customary practices for Native Hawaiians. So how do you then get 
this input uh, to the state so that you can have this system in play uh, by the year 2030. Yeah, and, you know, we understand that these first meetings just drew a lot of fishermen out there just concerned. Yeah, I, yeah. in fact, I was texting with Marina this morning just to, to get the latest because, uh, you know, I wanted to have fresh data. And she did stress that this is not just about fishing, but among the, those most concerned are fishermen who are worried about their livelihoods. Uh, and again, I want to stress that the idea is to strike balance. There are scientists involved uh, in a number of interests. Uh, and by the way, this is not all the the waters in the, the, the reef, if you will, in the state. These are marine managed management areas, MMAs they're called. And it's, you know, maybe 5 6% of the, of, the, of the state lands, but they're so important. I mean, they include Kahului Harbor. And I think the general consensus really is that the status quo is not sustainable, that you cannot continue things as they are. But yes, uh, to your point, there was a lot of folks that fish um, for a living or, or for, or for uh, hobbies, and they're worried that somehow you know, their livelihood is going to be impacted. All that has to be taken into consideration. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Where I go uh, snorkeling here on Oahu, I remember seeing like five yellow tang. And when I went to the mm. Dakota recently, there was like 100, 200 at this one spot. And, you know, I know there's a <laughs> lot of concern about, you know, uh, aquarium fishing and that kind of thing. But, you know, when you realize what it used to be, wow, you know. Right. Uh, you know, Marina mentions in her story, one estimate uh, is that in, in some particular uh, reef, reef fish cases, there's been a, a, a drop by as many as 75 percent of the population. Uh, and we should say this is not just something that's limited to Hawaii as important as that is, according to Marina's story, more than 100 countries have actually adopted a, a similar 30 by 30 plan. But but time is running out. Josh Green, the lieutenant governor, hoping to be the next Democratic governor, has expressed support for the, the plan. But Duke Iona, the Republican, a little concerned. He's hearing some of that feedback and, and, and worried about this. And, and just another concern that's come out of these hearings is why has this taken so long? And we mentioned COVID. Uh, part of this is also the fact that the Department of Land and Natural Resources is the lead agency. Makes sense, right? DLNR. Mm-hmm. But DLNR, as we've been reporting, uh, seems like forever, is an underfunded, understaffed agency. And that's a, a massive kuleana to take on. Uh, there are indications that federal funds uh, can be used to support this. Yeah. But as you mentioned, Governor Ige just has, oh my gosh, it's like, what, a month left in office? And he's Probably yeah, said, hey, hurry is, up. <laughs> I know this is this is clearly going to have to go on to the uh, the next governor, and you know there, there's also a lot of suspicions when it comes to government managing our, our nearshore waters. Think about the ejection well problems on Maui that ended up in the courts. But the hope is within one to two years to have these recommendations from from the communities sent to this this group, this commission, to put rules together and have those approved, and, and see if we can get that approved ahead of the of the 2030. We will, I'm certain, continue to report on this because, again, this is not just Maui. This is all, this is a statewide initiative to protect our nearshore waters. Right. So uh, there'll be ample opportunity uh, for input uh, around the state. Which means Marina will be going to more hearings. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, that was Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, Read Marina Riker's story. Visit (laughs) civilbeat.org. Republican candidate for governor Duke Iona will appear at a rally tonight at McKinley High School Auditorium. It's a venue that traditionally Democrats have held court in their stronghold grip on politics in the islands. We talked to Iona yesterday afternoon about his strategy to reach out to the half a million registered voters who didn't vote the last election and his concerns about the Holomua 30 by 30 initiative that we just heard about. Well, right now, Catherine, in regards to the campaign, it's about getting the people who did not vote to vote. In the primary, 500, I think it's 511,771 people did not vote. Registered, but didn't vote. That amounted to about 60% of the registered voters. 
that is very disturbing for me. And I think it should be disturbing not only for me, but also for other candidates, as well as the media, as well as the Office of Elections, because it's commentary on all of us. If you can't get these people to vote, why is it? And so we've been concentrating on walking. Um, somebody asked me what's, what was the biggest difference between uh, this election, uh, this campaign, I should say, and the other campaigns that I've, I've had. And I said probably the biggest, one of the biggest differences is that I'm doing more retail politics. I'm, I'm doing person to person with people. So I've been walking pretty much the whole state. Um, I didn't touch every, every household, but we've touched quite a few. And when we come across people who are registered and didn't vote, and we ask them, are you registered to vote? And they say, yeah, I'm registered. Did you vote? And that's when, you know, a lot of people are not shy about this. They say, no, I didn't. Well, why didn't you vote? And the, the majority of the responses are because it doesn't matter. Why should I vote? The same people get elected. We get the same old, same old. So are you happy with that? No, I'm not. Then why don't you vote? Why should I vote? Again, they give you the same response. Why should I vote? How is it going to be any different? And to me, that's commentary, like I said, on, on all of what I mentioned, candidates, media, as well as Office of Elections. That means we're not doing our job in regards to giving them the reasons why they should vote and the fact that, no, your vote does matter. And if you want to change the status quo, that's why you need to vote. And apparently that's not getting through uh, to these people because they keep giving that response. And if we were doing what we were supposed to do, then they wouldn't give that response. They would be actively engaged. And you can say, well, it's also then education because I'm, that means we're not, giving, we're not getting civics classes in, in, you know, in the first grade or third grade. Well, I go back to, again, maybe the families because you know, I, I, we had this one really great conversation with these two recent graduates. Um, they were 18 and I believe uh, 19. And we had a lengthy conversation with them. And they, you know, they after, when I say lengthy, it was over 30 minutes. And uh, they said, you know, thank you so much because our parents don't talk about this. And, um, you know, we, now we know we're, we're much more engaged. And so we ended up, they were not registered at the time. So we ended up registering them because you can do it, you know, online, as well as, you know, pretty much persuading them to vote for us. So it, it's been, that's been probably... One of the, the, the biggest things that we've been doing throughout the whole general election is getting out there and touching these people. Have you been focused on the younger vote? Because Just any, anybody who did not cast a vote. And, and, you know, I hate to say it, but the majority of the, those people are, are young people. But I can tell you this. We've run across several people who are like my age, okay? I'm 67, who have never voted in their lives. Wow. In their lives, Lifelong residents, local residents, they're articulate, they're intelligent, they work, they pay taxes, they do everything. But they just don't vote. They don't, never voted, never voted in their lives. How do you figure that one out? So right? did you change your mind? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay. I did. I did. Well, this week you put out something uh, about uh, a plan, Holomua Marine 3030. Mm -hmm. You want to put a pause on that? I, Explain I just to our got, listeners. Yeah, I just got it. Uh, I just saw it yesterday. When I say I just saw it, I saw a lot of the comments yesterday. This is by DLNR. This is a marine, I guess you could say, sustainability management program that the uh, EGA administration, I believe, first developed or uh, became a, uh, a program that they wanted to implement in 2016. I guess it's evolved over the years. I don't know exactly how it evolved over the years, but uh, here we are, one month, not even one month, maybe four, three weeks from uh, the end of their term, and they're pushing this out right now uh, in regards to implementing it. It basically calls for, by the year 2030, 30% of our coastline throughout the state will fall within these restricted area. And uh, they, they're saying it's just, it's not restricted in the sense of fishing and other aquatic, I guess you could say, mining that you can do within the state, but it's, it's the reserve areas that will be designated by this plan. So they had a, an informational meeting, I believe it was on Maui and I believe Kauai, and the feedback from that, because now the local fishermen were invited, uh, a lot of them attended, and I guess it's the first time they came across it. And, and they were um, not happy. A lot of questions, 
a lot of concerns. And so when I saw that, I thought it was only proper since uh, if I get elected, um, I think I'm, we're going to be the administration to, to push this through, through the LNR. I just thought it was appropriate for me to say at this point in time, I would not approve of its implementation unless and until we get um, much more input from the community. Because I, I feel like, just like the energy plan, our Hawaii Clean Energy Plan, you know, the path, the path to our objective, right? And the objective with clean energy is renewable energies. Uh, the path to uh, the uh, Holomua um, Marine 3030 is sustainability and resource management. The path is just as important to the goal. And this is really an offshoot of what they're doing in California. It's, it's and actually throughout uh, the world. This is like, I, I believe this is a UN type of uh, program that they're, they're pushing. And again, Hawaii, we, we cannot just follow suit with what the worst rest of the world is doing. I just don't think it's right. I don't think it's proper. I think we understand what sustainability is all about and everybody wants to get there. But how we do it is very important. And so that's why I put that statement out there. So we take a pause and we make sure that our local culture our local ways are very much a part of this uh, this plan for sustainability. Like I said, and it all it all comes down, you know, being a, a local boy who has been raised here, I understand what stewardship is all in regards to our aina and our ocean and everything else, right? So I just want to make sure that the path we take is the proper path to achieve the goal that this. Uh, uh, this program wants to achieve. And, you know, this week the uh, Navy just released the uh, plan to shut down Red Hill, and they talk about keeping the tanks in place, repurposing them. Any thoughts on that at this point? Defueling it uh, within a year is fantastic. The tanks itself, I, I'm not sure. I think the, the Department of Health is, has yet to weigh in on that. Obviously, there's some thoughts and some ideas in regards to what you can do to the tanks. They, they, get, it, they get it now in regards that we're not going to put anything more, any, any toxin uh, in there. So I've heard some of the suggestions that they could use it for. I'm not, I'm not totally against that. But uh, I guess the devil's in the details, right? We've got to learn a little bit more on what they want to do. But I think first and foremost, defueling those tanks is, is what needs to be achieved. And they seem to be on, on, uh, you know, on time with that. So let's, let's make that happen like right now. And, you know, I know there is some, some concern about the long-term remediation, you know, because we still yes. don't know where a yes. lot of the fuel went yes. from the previous spills. And folks might just be worried that our water, our aquifer is protected. And if anything leaches in there, that the military is responsible for cleaning it, it up. Absolutely. And I said that was a priority. And that's you're, you hit it around the head. That's exactly what uh, I get elected. That's exactly what we're going to do. Make sure that if there is to be remediation, it's done you know, today, not tomorrow. And of course, that uh, whoever's responsible will be will be responsible for it. We can go through that later. But right now, it's just making sure that we defuel those tanks and check and see if there's any need for remediation and get it done. That's first and foremost. Then we can we can sort out, you know, in regards to who's going to be paying for it, et cetera, et cetera. In this campaign, I know abortion has been, you know, an issue because of what's happening uh, federally, you know, across the nation. I did see you in an interview talk about some legislation that uh, you understood that New York had passed that allows abortions like 28 days after mm -hmm. a child is born. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you want to clarify sure, that? Sure. Because, you know, that's been found not to be true. No. I misspoke in regards to the uh, the state, and I and I did preference my statement, and it was edited. So obviously, uh, whoever did that did not do it correctly because I said, if I am not mistaken, I believe I wasn't sure. I believe that New York had just passed because the question was about infanticide, and the reporter says, "What's infanticide?" And I said. Well, I'm surprised you don't know that as a reporter because this is something that is very controversial in regards to several states. Infanticide is just that. Baby is born and is basically aborted. And so very disturbing, obviously, to me uh, and several, you know, a lot of other people. And so I, I didn't get the, the, uh, the direction of that correct. I since then did some research on it on my own, and obviously uh, I got it misspoken in regards to where it's happening. Well, I guess there's just a lot of 
misinformation out there on a lot of these critical issues. And if voters haven't voted yet, uh, you know, there are people that say, no, you got to set the record straight because that's mm-hmm. not accurate. Well, again, it's not something that affects us. And it was in response to a question. This is why I've always said this is why we shouldn't be talking about this at all. I mean, the law in Hawaii is clear, right? Abortion is legal. I stated my position on this, I don't know how many times. You can go back to when I was LG, and they, they, they keep bringing this issue up for, uh, you know, in, in, uh, uh, for me and nobody else. <laughs> it seems like I'm the only one that's been asked this question about, you know, about abortion. Um, they don't even take the other side of it, so I, I'm fine with that. But, but the bottom line, again, is that in Hawaii, the matter is not obscured in any way. You know, I, I did misspeak in regards to that, what I thought was a law, but I, 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 I said it. Well, to, to clarify your, your position, though, on abortion, I know you've said that personally you have ideas about it, but here in Hawaii, you can't yeah. change it. I don't have ideas. My values and my principles mm-hmm. are the same. I, I'm, I'm pro-life uh, from conception uh, to death, and uh, that's my position. But again, the law is clear in Hawaii. Abortion is legal. A woman can choose whether she wants to have an abortion or doesn't want to have an abortion. And the only way that law can be changed anyway, whether it's against abortion or for abortion or amending it anyway, is through the legislature. That was former Lieutenant Governor Duke Iona, who is running for governor on the Republican ticket. He says rather than talk about abortion, he'd rather focus on what he says are the campaign issues of inflation, cost of living, crime and education. The GOP will hold a rally tonight at McKinley High School Auditorium. We'll have more elections coverage on our website, including our most most recent interviews with candidates in the upcoming general election. Go to hawaiipublicradio.org. General election ballots are in the mail. Need help studying up on the candidates and issues? HPR is here to help. Check out our free voter guide at hawaiipublicradio.org slash vote. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Leslie Shore, author of Listen to Succeed. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to identify and overcome barriers to effective listening. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, joined by the Oahu Choral Society with conductor Akiko Fujimoto in a performance of Carl Orff's Carmina Burana, November 13th at the Blaisdell, myhso.org. The new book, Island Wisdom, Island Tradi- Hawaiian Traditions and Practices for a Meaningful Life, aims to contribute to the efforts to preserve Hawaiian culture and knowledge. It was written by Oahu native Kainoa Danes, who works as the Senior Director of Brand for the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau, and award-winning travel writer Annie Daly. The pair published the book after traveling around the state and gathering wisdom and insight from Hawaiian community leaders, teachers, and elders. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Danes to talk about how he hoped the book would impact readers. Your book is titled Island Wisdom. Yeah. And wisdom is different from knowledge. This is my favorite explanation of the difference. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Okay. Wisdom is knowing it doesn't belong in fruit salad. <laughs> so, so I, uh, can you? <laughs> yeah. For someone who hates tomatoes, I like that. Can you talk about how your book is different from books of Hawaiian knowledge? This book is different in the sense that we asked a couple of pretty vague questions in a sense to mm-hmm. 20 practitioners, whether they be kumuhula, musicians, what have you. And we asked them pretty open questions to allow them to impart their own 
combination, I think, of knowledge and wisdom. And the two questions, the first one was, what does aloha mean to you personally? Mm-hmm. You know, and that is such an open-ended, deep question for Hawaiians. And each one of them had such interesting and diverse spiritual guiding, I mean, their answers. So there was no, there's no right answer necessarily for that question. And the second one was, what is one lesson that Hawaii can teach the rest of the world? And those two were equally diverse and fascinating. And again, they're coming from a place that um, their school of learning, not all knowledge is taught in the same school. And we talked to various schools, if you will, to understand where they came from. We just allowed them to answer it. And we, Annie, my co-author and I, we just kind of pulled nuggets out of that and shaped it into this book that really could have been many, many more pages, but, Mm -hmm. you know, word counts a real thing and page counts and all of that. So we had to do our best to fit it into the small book that it is. It's a nice sized book. It's not like a big encyclopedia Mm -hmm. that's kind of daunting. And it's not like a little pamphlet. It was, it was, um, at first I thought, wow, that's a lot of pages to fill, but they filled themselves, you know, and with each interview, it led to an idea, a concept of a value, a Hawaiian value that hadn't been thought of and necessarily to be in the book. And so each interview led to the next, in a sense. And that's how, you know, even choosing the people, there's so many more people I could have interviewed, but I chose, you know, some of my closest friends and family just started at home with a very, very small handful. And then as they talk about something, oh, you're talking more about that. I know somebody who can expand on that. So then we, you know, reach out to another person and, we say that too, like, gosh, there's so many more people we'd love to have included. But even that with 20 people, again, this could have been 18 volumes. So it was tricky. That was actually the challenge is how do you thin this down? And what we did, which I'm proud of, how do you make it palatable and digestible for two audiences? To me, the two target audiences are the Western or the outsider to Hawaii who may come here, who may have questions about Hawaii. We're not saying to come. It's just if you have questions about Hawaii and then the other is for our own kama'aina as a refresher, reminder, for those that need it, right? It's not for everybody in that in that sense, but for those who just a little reminder of what aloha is from these 20 amazing people, what ma'alama is, kuleana, all these different Hawaiian values that we hear so often, but we approach it from the first audience to how do we explain this in somewhat layman's terms, but also mm-hmm. taking it down under the surface a little bit, but not giving away everything, right? Because some of that belongs here with us. That's our our culture, our history, et cetera. So it's kind of a primer to other books of knowledge and wisdom written here in Hawaii. Sort of that that missing link, if you will, between some of these books is much literature here in Hawaii is written for Hawaiians by Hawaiians. And if, unless you have, you know, the dictionary or, you know, you've read several, it's hard to sometimes connect dots. And so that was kind of our hope that this book would be that bridge. Speaking of the Hawaiian audience for your book, on page 162, you talk about the significance of names mm. in Hawaiian culture. You state that names are actually thought to mold a child. Yeah. The hope is that they will become what they've been named or what they're named and that they will embody their name. That's something that I know my family takes very seriously. Were there any other bits of wisdom you felt had been overlooked in recent decades that you felt readers should be reminded of again? As I'm thinking of the answer, just to further the naming part, that's partly why we wanted to include that, because I feel the same way about, you know, you know, Hawaii and giving them to children, giving them to whomever. In fact, you know, my, in my day job working at the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau, I get emails all the time from people I've never met, strangers who are just emailing info at, you know, and it gets forwarded to me because they want me to name their dog. Mm-hmm. They want me to to put a tattoo, you know, put a tattoo in their arm and they're double checking something. They want, I've had people, can you name my child? And I'm like, no, go on your journey and ex- explore your family and your heritage. And sorry, that's just not something that I, I want that kuleana f- yeah, burden in right. that regard. Right. So other values, I think one of them comes to mind, my friend, chef Kelo Domingo, he talks about food resourcing, sustainability, but my favorite phrase he says is eat what get eat what's around us, you know, Mm -hmm. shop local, support local. He said the poke in his family, you know, everybody thinks poke and they think ahi immediately. But he's like, no, where I live, where I grew up, we had reef fish. My kupuna made poke out of whatever was available. And and one of the questions was, oh, what's your favorite kind of poke? He said, whatever's in front of me. 
And that kind of idea of, of food sustainability, food sovereignty, you know, I think is important. Our ancestors had no homelessness or food shortages prior to Western contact. They were fed and employed and housed and fine. And now we rely on barges and planes to bring us our supplies. And I think that's something that, I mean, I'm guilty. I, you know, just had Taco Bell for lunch, but, you know, it's still something that reminds us where does our food come from and, and what is that energy we're putting into to creating it and then eating it and passing that on. So I, it was a reminder to me, right, to do that. So I think that's one of the values or the lessons that um, eat what get, you know, support local and really think about our, our longevity here in these islands. And if we want to keep living here and maintaining that, we need to kind of give back to the land so it can in the free future and continue to give back to us. When I think about the other audience that your book is intended for, The Visitor, what kind of efforts do you see in the future for people here to increase the amount of education available to visitors that come in? Our current campaign right now with the Hawaii Tourism Authority and us at the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau, Malama Kuhome, Malama Hawaii, you know, the, shifting the mentality that Hawaii is our home, not your playground. And so when you travel, you're going to somebody else's home. And we talk about that in Island Wisdom. At first, I was trying to, I don't know, I was fighting that it's not a travel book. It's not a travel book. It's its a you know book about wisdom, but it's a travel book. If you're coming to a place and you would like to know the protocols, you'd like to know the how to, what to, why, whatever, where are you going to find that? Someone's going to tell you. And so we, through work with our Malama Hawaii series, there's video education that we've shared. So pre-arrival stuff. And then we have Kuleana travel tips that we've been sharing for post-arrival, asking permission, following the signage, don't turn your back to the ocean, stop slapping seals, you know, these kinds of things that, I mean, I'm not defending the visitor, but if you didn't know, how would you know not to do certain things? I mean, a lot of it's common sense. I'm again, not defending anybody because a lot of, most of it's common sense, but there's certain things that walking on the coral, don't do that. But, you know, if you've never been to a beach before in your life, how would you know that? So working with our partners here in Hawaii, with government, private, you know, with the hotels, the, the members, the partners, the rent-a-cars, getting the messaging out. I think that's the first line of defense. Another one's training members of the industry who, whether they're Kama'aina or just moved here, stop promoting these dangerous spots just because they seem cool. On any island, all islands, you know, stop promoting these places, bus drivers who... It's a different time, different generation who back in the day, they used to promote places that maybe were okay 30, 40 years ago. But now with the millions more people that are here, nobody should be going to these places. So it's either safety or sacredness, you know, being able to educate the visitor pre and post arrival. But then again, we need to do that internally. We're going to clean the house internally first before you invite the visitors over. So we're trying to find a balance of doing both. As you were on your journey yeah. writing this book, I imagine it took some time and I feel like you you visited a lot of different places, talked yeah. to a lot of Kumu. Were there any pearls of wisdom that you learned for the first time while you were writing the book? You know, it's hard to pinpoint in a sense because part of the reason why I almost said, I said no in the initial part to writing this book mm -hmm. was because they'd already titled the book. And I felt it was very Mahoy to be calling something Island Wisdom and, you know, I know my way, my, my general way around the Hawaiian culture and language, but I was like, that's a bullseye on my back to go put my name on a book that says Island Wisdom. No, thank you. But then when I realized I could become a funnel and bring in people that I know and trust to share, you know, I know their mokuo, how I know their genealogy of, of whether it's hula music, familial, et cetera, that I trusted that, you know, I trusted that they're not going to take us on some weird path. So I had a general basic understanding of a lot of what they talked about. But I feel like the learning for me was the depth of love that they have for our island home and how important it was for so many. Because many of them told me no at first, too, for the same reason. They're like, no, 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 ask somebody else. I'm like, no, auntie, no, I, I really think I know you. I know what's missing, you know, in this educational gap for people coming to Hawaii or who are wanting to learn more about Hawaii. You know, in U.S. history on the continent, they talk about Presley, Pearl Harbor and Pineapples. You know, and that's right, Hawaii. Yeah, right. That's our, and it's like, well, no, you know, and so it, it took me a minute to kind of get them to want to, but once they're on board, just their their love and their desire to convey and share this ike, this manao, their ideas and thoughts and their love for Hawaii. So it's hard to pinpoint one thing specifically. Well, maybe the one that did just pop into my head, as I said, there's nothing. Was the idea of hanai 
I understand it like many of us do, you know, to adopt. But I think it was Uncle Danny Akaka and a friend of mine, Joe McGinn, who both kind of began exploring. I think it was Hana'ai is the longer word. Hana'ai is a contraction. Was it Hana'ai or Hana'ia? I'm sorry. But it's it's the feeding, working to feed somebody, like really feeding of this person that you have taken into your life and not just food, but feeding them love, feeding them knowledge, feeding them education, you know, all these things that it's much more than just that surface word, English word of adoption mm-hmm. in a sense. And I think the depth of that word was new to me. And, and those are the, so it's, it's, it's all like a lot of the values and ideas and reminders in there. They're not just, they're not Hawaiian only per se, but they're in a Hawaiian lens and Hawaiian context. And I think that's a beautiful thing, especially for our next generation that's coming up speaking Hawaiian more fluently, you know, they're, you know, charter schools, immersion schools, that all happened right after me. I was too old for a lot of that stuff, but um, they're growing up with a different mentality. And so it's awesome to have some younger voices in the book too, to kind of find some of that balance. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Thank you for the opportunity. That was author Kainoa Danes talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. His new book, Island Wisdom, Hawaiian Traditions and Practices for a Meaningful Life, is out now. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing comprehensive health care open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Hawaii Office Centers, Corcoran Pacific Properties, and Ekahi Health. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering a variety of classes and creative experiences for youth and adults at its art school. Registration for winter session opens November 16th. More at honolulumuseum.org. For three decades, Paul Maley has been nurturing dance talent at Mid-Pacific Institute's School of the Arts. Several have gone on to train at Juilliard, and many more have appeared on Broadway. This week, one of their own, former student Kent Shinomai, begins at Cirque du Soleil Las Vegas, the first mid-pack graduate to join the circus. Shinomai just completed his artist-in-residence program this August at mid-pack. Dance students will perform an original piece choreographed by Shinomai later this month at Paliku Theater. We hear first from Paul Maley. It's been 30 years, but 30 years well spent. I can say that many of our students don't go on to be dance performers, professional performers, but we are proud of all of them. Those that do have gone on to some amazing things, and we have students all across the world performing now. So, yeah, I am the proud papa. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you've had students that have made it to Broadway, and then we have one in Cirque du Soleil. It's fabulous. So tell us about what's in store. So Kent Shinomai is a 2009 graduate of Mid-Pacific, and he came back in August. We invited him back to work with our students. He did a one-week residency, and then he had an audition, and he worked then for two more weeks with the students creating a work that I'll let Kent tell you a little bit more about because he incorporates something unusual into the piece, another passion of his that he's brought for our students. Okay, Ken, jump in here. So yeah, so for me, I was just really grateful for the opportunity that Paul provided me with having this residency, being my first residency, and right after graduating with my master's. So last year, I graduated with my MFA in dance from UC Irvine, and my thesis was actually revolved around dance and magic. 
So growing up, my father, he was a professional magician. He still is, but I also learned magic from my dad. And I did magic, you know, for like parties and all that stuff, like assisting my dad wherever he did events. And then while I was studying in college for undergrad, that was at University of Hawaii Manoa. I started exploring the idea of dance and magic and how I can bring the two together, uh, incorporating magic into my dancing. Well, that sounds um, like a then, lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was definitely very hard trying to, you know, put the two together. But I think, you know, definitely my passion for both really helped me, you know, push through all those obstacles and finally figure how to make this wondrous kind of like blend fusion of the two art forms. And then in my master's for my thesis, I was able to work with dancers here in Hawaii, as well as in California at UC Irvine, incorporating magic you know, and creating pieces with dancers. You know, it wasn't just me as like a soloist, but teaching this art form of magic to my dancers. And that was definitely the first thing thought of when Paul asked me to create a piece and be the guest choreographer for the upcoming fall dance concerts. I would love to create a piece that incorporates magic into it. That will be on stage pretty soon, so I'm super excited for that. What's the name of the piece? The name of the piece is Sense. There are definitely a lot of, you know, modern dance pioneers who have incorporated lighting, costumes, you know, uh, special effects to incorporate this idea of illusion. I think for me, with my background with actual, like, theatrical magic, I really wanted to incorporate something where the dancers themselves were doing basically magic tricks and illusions on stage and incorporating that into their dance. You know, normally you see sometimes like magicians on stage doing all these illusions and then maybe they have dancers in the back, you know, and they're they're kind of on stage just dancing and being background dancers. But for me, it was wanting these dancers to actually be the magicians themselves. Well, Paul, I don't know if you've had a chance to see the Cirque du Soleil show that Kent is in, but I mean, I love Cirque du Soleil. I always wanted to run off and join the circus, and what they (laughs) do is just amazing. But I mean, what's it like when you're in the audience watching your students perform up there? Well, the first thing I think of is what they looked like when they were my students. (laughs) I think back to them as teenagers, and now there, I see them, and I'm just I still have that image of what they were in the day in our studios here in Manoa. But it's just pride and that I was part of their journey and that I was able to assist them as they got to this place where they are now. And yeah, I just get filled with pride as I sit and watch. And of course, if an opportunity provides itself, then I'm always will mention something to someone. Yeah, that's my student. (laughs) So it's just... uh, It really fills me full of pride. Well, I think we were all so proud when we heard that Daniel Ching got into, you know, Hamilton. uh, Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned that he was also on Broadway. I mean, so were you able to watch those performances? I saw Daniel in Hamilton and San Francisco, but I did not see him in the revival of West Side Story. I had plans to do that, and then COVID came, so that didn't come to be. But I'm planning this summer to try to get to the Netherlands to see another one of our former students, Connor Chu, who now is in the Netherlands Dance Theater. So, you know, we have students all over the world. So maybe when I retire and someday in the near future, I'll be able to just keep going and seeing them all around the world performing. That's that's a dream I have. Oh, that would be awesome. And then, Kent, I don't know, you know, as part of this guest artist program. I mean, do you recall when you were a student at Midpac and, you know, maybe you had a, an alum come back? Yeah, so for me, definitely one of my fondest memories in the dance program at Midpac was the opportunities I got being in the guest pieces. So it wasn't alumni, but I was in these pieces at the guest artist choreograph. Definitely, I feel like a lot of my time at Midpack, those were the memories, you know, really, you know, learning a new style. You know, for instance, one 
a guest artist. Her name is Amy Schiffner, and she's also a professor at a University of Hawaii at Manoa. And she was, you know, one of the reasons why I actually ended up going to school there. And, you know, I danced under her, and, you know, she was a huge mentor of mine throughout my time during the undergrad. You know, so again, I'm just really grateful for all the opportunities that MidPAC provided me throughout my time there. And what's it like being in Cirque du Soleil? So actually, I am in Cirque, but I start uh, my training this Friday. So I just got into Cirque du Soleil and I start training this Friday. And as we speak, I actually just drove into Las Vegas, like literally like 30 minutes ago from (laughs) California. So, you know, I'm excited for the process. It's a one month process of me learning the entire show and getting Mm -hmm. put in. And then my first official show is actually going to be this coming December 2nd. Okay. All right. Well, Mr. Mailer, you're going to have to go for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And hopefully I come back with a little extra money in my pocket. Yes. Well, that was longtime Mid-Pacific Institute faculty member Paul Maley and his former student, Kent Shinomai, who we talked to yesterday afternoon. Shinomai was the guest artist-in-residence at MidPAC, where he choreographed an original number for the upcoming fall dance concert at the Palikou Theater. Tickets are still available for the mid-November performances. Shinomai will make his Las Vegas debut in December, taking the stage in Michael Jackson 1. for us today. Up tomorrow, we hear about a documentary short, 30 Years of Aloha, that's picked up film festival awards in Europe and Asia. Got an idea for a possible guest on the show? Talkback line is 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.